Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. Thanks for joining me. You are listening to Triple R. You're in the glass house for the next hour. With me, my name is Beth AQ. Before all else, I acknowledge that we broadcast to you from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, who are the traditional custodians of this land. I pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the violence of the colonial project is ongoing. I stand in solidarity with black communities both here and around the world and whilst that is not a new or revolutionary statement uh, and that racism is very much not a new problem in this country or around the world, this moment feels like an especially pertinent time to say it and then say it again and then say it louder. I hope you can stay with me for the next hour. Coming up on the show today, in just under 10 minutes, I'm going to be joined by two audio producers, Sarah Mashman and Alice and Sarah, who have worked on From the Embers podcast that has just been released through the CBAA, which looks at several communities that have been affected by the bushfires uh, of the last summer. It's a really incredible project that worked really closely with a lot of community radio broadcasters. So I'm very excited to be chatting with them. And then later on in the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Eves Rees. They have just won the Calibre Award for their essay called Reading the Mess Backwards. And it's an essay which interrogates Eves' personal experience of becoming and being trans and it digs into the messiness of bodies and gender and identity and you can read it in the June and July issue of the Australian Book Review. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I'm excited to have my first guests joining me on the line. In the wake of COVID-19, it can be easy, particularly for uh, city dwellers, to forget that only a few short months ago, hundreds of communities across this continent were faced with fire and smoke, homes destroyed, and one of the most difficult and devastating bushfire seasons that Australia has ever seen. From the Embers, it's a is a brand new podcast that's created by the C- uh, Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, and it takes listeners to the very heart of nine communities affected by the recent bushfire crisis and it is a podcast that is a really important reminder to us all of the essential role that storytelling plays in ensuring that we allow those affected to be honoured and heal and really just to be at the centre of the story. So joining me to talk about it this afternoon are two producers on the project, Sarah Mashman and Alice and Sarah. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Um, It is a really, you know, incredible community project. It's a a project that is kind of created with nine community radio stations that were really on the front line of of some of the fires. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project first came about? Uh, Yeah, so I might... um answer that one. I'm actually the EP, the executive producer, um, and I was pulled into the project very early on. Um, CBAA contacted me um, and what they told me they wanted to do just really interested me. I'm a former um, emergency broadcaster with the ABC and I've, I've lived regionally in Tasmania as well as um, in metro areas in Sydney. And just I was very aware of what had been happening. My uncle actually um, stayed to defend in Malakuta. Uh, which, of course, was hit very heavily um, and very harshly by the fires that so many areas were. And the project, the idea for the project really came from going into these com- communities, um, trying to get producers from the areas, so New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria, and having them go into those communities for about a week, which isn't a lot of time, but from a journalistic point of view these days a week is a lot of time at the same time but what we really tried to do was find people such as Alice and Sarah who's based in New South Wales such as Lisa Burns in South Australia and Anne who was based in Victoria so they at least had a broad sense of the state. It's yeah it's a really incredible project and I can only imagine all of the moving parts that uh yeah that kind of went into creating this. Alice, can you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, how you entered the project and and your experience? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think I entered the project before the project began because I live in Maruya on the far south coast and it was, um, you know, really in the line of fire for about six weeks. Uh, We had, you know, the ember attack on New Year's Eve. You know, I'm sure you know the towns that were hit around us, you know, Mogo, Batemans Bay, uh, down south, Cabago, maybe you don't know these towns, Um, but, you know, towns that were surrounded by grass, you know, people thought they would be completely safe, were terribly incinerated. So we were kind of living this 
fire threat for the entire summer. And then it was at the end of January that our town caught on fire. And it was actually stopped at my boundary fence on my property on the western side of Maria. Um, so that's kind of where the story started for me. And it was not long after that the CBAA, the Community Broadcasting Association, gave me a call and said, would you be interested in producing three episodes of this wonderful series that we have got going? And for me, I mean, I'm a community um, broadcaster myself in uh, the Yerubadella Access Radio, so I love community radio. And I just thought these are the three things that I'm the most passionate about at the moment, which is telling stories from my own community about the bushfire season that we had. I mean, as you say, it's about honouring and healing, and I think in the recovery effort we can really overlook storytelling and the art as a healing and recovery process. So that was really important to me, mm-hmm. and I love radio as a medium and podcast. Um, so, you know, of course, I, I jumped at the chance to do it. Mm. And Alice, somebody that is, you know, personally affected by the bushfires, how did you find, what, what, the, what was that experience like for you of going out and, and chatting to people at, at a time which, you know, it was really hard. People have lost their homes, people have, mm-hmm. their lives look so different. What, what was that like for you? Yeah, well, I mean, um, so for instance, one of the stories that we have in From the Embers, which is called Home and How. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it ends up being about loss of wildlife and habitat and what home means to the billions of animals that died. Uh, but we start off with an interview with a friend of mine um, who his home in Malua Bay was completely and utterly destroyed on the New Year's Eve fire. You know, so to approach a friend and say, you know, would you mind doing a recording with me, I was a little tentative at first, and and so were a lot of the people that I interviewed. You know, they're members of my community. Um, but it was really interesting because pretty much every single one of them said in some way, shape or form after the interview, thank you for giving me that opportunity and that platform to tell my story. It was healing. Mm. So... You know, I think we need to do a lot more of that. But the wonderful thing about the From the Embers podcast series is it's not just kind of medicinal or therapeutical for the people who are in it. Um, So many people, you know, you talked about city dwellers before. So many of my friends in Melbourne have contacted me and said that it was such an important and powerful listening experience for them too. I mean, as yeah, somebody that lives in, in Melbourne, I can I can definitely say that, you know, I feel like, you know, starting out in the first episode where it really takes you to that that sense of how scary it was to be in a position where you have the fires that are, you know, imminent, they're coming, they're just around the corner. I think it really was able to portray how terrifying that must have been. And of course, you know, I saw it on the news and, you know, it was very like prevalent in that way, but just not firsthand. Um you know, the, the podcast does start out by kind of interrogating that power of radio in, in, in this crisis and, and in, crisis, in crises um, and how, you know, radio announcements from community radio stations in, in Braywood, um, you know, had people saying that, you know, that the fire was coming. Um, can you tell us a little bit 
more about, I suppose, this this power of radio and, and how, how it was a lifeline for kind of transmitting to the community in these times of, of crisis and emergency? Yeah, and I think um, I'll just say one thing and then handball it over to Sarah because, as she said before, she has worked as an emergency broadcaster mm. in Tasmania, and I just think that is a phenomenal role. Um, but, yeah, as you say, one of the episodes takes us into ABC Radio Southeast, where they were broadcasting almost non-stop for six weeks. Mm. And the toll that that took on all of the staff there was incredible and I think is still being felt. And then, of course, we also go to Braidwood Community Radio, where these two guys... One of them wasn't even a presenter. He's the kind of manager Mm. of Braidwood Radio Station find themselves going into a station, doing emergency broadcasting and not leaving the station for almost two weeks. And, you know, they had feedback to them that they saved people's lives potentially uh, because they had on-the-ground information that other people didn't have and they were able to get that out. And I think you have to remember, like, for community radio, as most of us who work in community radio and know... We're volunteers. Like, we might have signed up to do, you know, jazz on a Sunday afternoon and then and then you're emergency broadcasting about whether people should stay in their house or leave and, you know, life-threatening situations. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's really intense. And I think the ABC, that was particularly for me, my story, very important because we were glued to the ABC and then the transmitter caught on fire and we lost the ABC and it was like uh, it was losing that lifeline because, you know, we also had no um, mobile reception so we couldn't get the Fires Near Me app on on our phone. And, um, you know, I just think it's so important to remember that ABC Regional is a lifesaver. It is absolutely a lifesaver and so I'm particularly upset about the recent cuts to the ABC and the kind of, you know, death by a thousand cuts that keeps happening because there is nothing like ABC regional Mm. in times of crisis. But I, yeah, I mean, maybe that's a good way to segue over to Sarah talking about emergency broadcasting. Um, So, I mean, first off, um, I'd also say that Alice has had the experience of, as she said, being there, being glued to their radio. So one of the initial conversations or something that came up very quickly in conversation was the fact that for so many people um, in these communities across Australia, radio, whether it be community or the ABC, the national broadcaster, um, really provided them with the up-to-date information that in some ways radio, because radio isn't just about the emergency updates. You're also hearing a voice that is so familiar to you that is part of your community a lot of the time. And so you have the apps on the one hand, which kind of gives you up-to-date information as well, unless, of course, that network goes down. But the thing about the apps is they're not being delivered by human. And so we really wanted to also consider this idea of what it actually means to be hearing from someone who you do know you might see down at the markets I run into my former colleagues all the time and that's colleagues from both community radio because I actually got my start at edge radio here in Tasmania Mm. um or at the ABC um and we really wanted to think about that and um 
I was lucky enough as part of this project, uh, it was really important that I go out and spend some time with my producers, that's Alice, Lisa and Anne. So I went to Malakuta mm. and in Malakuta I did an hour-long, actually I think it went for almost two hours, um, interview with Francesca and she was in her studio for six days pretty much straight the community radio studio which is on the main road in Malakuta, which then leads down to the wharf and there's just this really powerful statement I don't want to give too much of the story away of what happens but essentially she had to she couldn't leave the studio everything was on fire and things went down and so she spent when the fire hit it's it's so powerful coming from her so I don't really want to swell up anyone but she had to watch the fire kind of go down the street and it was heading straight for the wharf where so many people were sheltering that I don't think there's anyone in Australia or even across the globe who possibly hasn't seen that image that of people sheltering on the beach um in that kind of red glow and we were lucky enough to get some recordings of what it was actually sounded like to be down at the wharf sheltering. But I think Francesca, again, she, as much as she was trying to keep people up to date with the emergency information, she was also just trying to provide comfort and she was playing some kind of daggy songs because it was terrifying and it wasn't just a time of emergency coverage. When the fire actually hit, it it was very fast and people were battling it for about a day and then they were into recovery mode. But she was trying to provide information around that time as well. So before the fire hit, it was the information but also songs and after as well because the fire hit for New Year's. Like for so many places Mm. around Australia, this fire was coming at a time when we're meant to be celebrating the New Year. And so she had that in mind as well. So it was about keeping people's spirits up as much as it was providing the information they needed and I think I mean I'll just briefly touch on as someone who has also been in the role of producing and very occasionally presenting emergency coverage for the ABC that is something that we try and keep in mind as well where it's like you're really trying to think about the people in your community and you're trying to deliver them up-to-date information and occasionally play songs and really keep their spirits up because there's so many people tuning in who need to know what's going on and you're delivering it in a way which you're trying to be compassionate and get that information timely information to them I think the one advantage ABC has actually um or not advantage that might be the wrong terminology but we can put callers to air and so if you're mispronouncing something and Gordon and Rod who were based in Braidwood they actually bring this up as well if you do mispronounce something it happens um there's only so many streets you know and areas you know and some of them have very weird names even if you've lived in the community as I have for you know 25 years in Tasmania um you still get areas incorrect because they're so remote and you've Mm -hmm. just never heard of them but the brilliant thing is that people just call you and correct you straight away and just having that ability to say, yep, call in, let me know what's going on. And for ABC in particular, I know that we always have the ability to also pe- put people air and say, what are you seeing? 
what is there right now? What can you share with your community? And a lot of community radio stations do also have that capability as well now, which is fantastic. But, yeah, it was just something I remember from being a broadcaster is you have the ability to give people space and time on the radio and get those immediate updates from everyone. Mm. Yeah, and it's really striking that balance between keeping people calm and keeping people mm. informed. Mm. A real, yeah, a real talent to be able to kind of manage that all. If you have just joined us, uh, we are chatting all about the From the Embers podcast. It is a brand new podcast from the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia that really goes into the heart of nine communities that have been affected by the recent bushfire crisis. We are chatting to executive producer Sarah Mashman and one of the producers, Alice and Sarah. Um, Sarah, I'd love to, if you can tell me a little bit more about the the making process. I know that you EP'd this and as you said, you've got Alice, Lisa and Anna who are some of your producers. Can you tell us a little bit about, I, I know that you said you went into the communities, like how did, you know, this, this whole big project kind of come together? How long did it take? Uh, <laughs> um, as mm. Alice will remember, we had a very strict deadline um so it was a very quick process uh although my producers were able to spend about a week in each community that's only three weeks so really it was meant to be essentially a four-week project um it did of course take a lot longer than that but we did turn it around quickly and one of the the reasons we were able to do that was because we were talking to people or we were hiring people such as Alice who were already within that community in some way. Um, So we had a team meeting right at the start where we spent a lot of time talking about trauma and just making sure that everyone was really aware of how to engage with people who have been through a traumatic experience, um, how to give people space and time when doing an interview and also to ensure that we're doing these really long form interviews so that people do feel like they're being given that time and space to talk about what happened and what was important to them and also making sure that they had an opportunity to talk about um, what they think the story is. That came into it quite heavily as well where we really wanted communities to feel like they had a sense of empowerment in what they wanted to share Of course, we did also have to consider, I mean, this is a podcast uh, and the, we did have a time limit each, each episode is 27.50 because it was being aired across the community radio network. So although we're doing these long form interviews, we did also have to make it really clear that we would be cutting quite a lot out, which is a slightly devastating part of my job, but, you know, just trying to play real homage to what happened and get all these witness statements in a way. Um, So the beautiful thing about working with Alice in particular um, is that she was within the community. She knew what was going on. Alice had already been interviewing her community. I think during the bushfires and kind of straight Mm. out of that, she kept broadcasting essentially and also kept collecting stories. So when we had this first meeting, Alice Alice came to the meeting and was like, I can talk to this person. Um, we started a climate choir because we're really concerned about the climate crisis, even in the midst of the bushfire, because you can't divorce one from the other. Mm. Um, and then other stories, like I remember she told me she had this incredible interview <laughs> and then I really latched onto it, uh, as Alice mm. remembers. She told me about this woman who um, who is featured in episode one very briefly, but uh, Alice, I think I've got her name wrong. It's um, Gillian who talks about rumours um, 
and what it's like to hear a rumour that your house is potentially burnt down when you're at the supermarket and how devastating that is. And so Alice really came into this project very excited and already with stories that she wanted to share because she'd been directly affected. Um, and then Lisa, who was based in South Australia, um, she is a community radio broadcaster as well. And she really knew that she wanted to get up into the hills, into the Adelaide Hills to Cudley Creek, where a fast moving fire had caused all these evacuations. And one of the things that she was particularly interested in was really thinking about who's being affected and what their resources are. Because, of course, when we talk about people evacuating, it's not that easy. I mean, if you don't have a car, if you don't have access to a car, how do you evacuate? If you don't have a lot of funds, how do you leave your house when it might be the only thing you have and you might not be able to afford an insurance? Um, so we had a lot of conversations in this meeting and uh then we just very quickly move from there where it's reaching out to particular community radio stations. Um, Abe Killian from the um, from CRN, the Community Radio Network, was fantastic in reaching out to these different community stations and making contact and saying, hey, we want to send producers out to you. What are the, some of the stories you're hearing and who should we be talking to? Um, so that was really important as well, was just trying to really immerse the communities first and saying what happened and what should we be covering and who should we be talking to. Um, I think one of the minor downsides I'd touch on, because we had such a quick deadline, there were definitely interviews that we wanted to do that we just weren't able to um, due to the time. And then, of course, with COVID-19 starting to hit, with the restrictions and the lockdown, I mean, I remember flying to Kangaroo Island with Lisa and just being in this airport and it was already so empty um, and I'm someone who has had to travel a bit for my work previously and just to be kind of going through Melbourne Airport, for example, and you being the only person there was a little bit weird and South Australia on the way back to Sydney when I was in Adelaide Airport again, I think there were maybe 100 people in the entire airport and just that actually caused some things as well for example we were going to go to the york peninsula um but a decision was made not to because we didn't want to potentially bring covid into an area where there were people who were at risk um and so we i ended up going to kuma and doing an episode there instead uh with lisa as a contributing producer um but alice you might want to touch on some of the things that you considered in terms of the first three episodes when coming up with ideas for it? Oh, look, yeah. I mean, I had a thousand and one stories that I thought were really wonderful and worth pursuing. And, you know, I did three episodes and, you know, there's another thousand out there. Um, I guess, you know, um, fly-in journalists can only kind of cover so much. And so it really is a wonderful podcast series in that it's people within the communities telling their own stories. And all of us have our individual stories uh, and they're all, I think, really valuable. And they're valuable lessons because, you know, as Sarah touched on the climate crisis, uh, you know, like I was aware of climate breakdown, the climate crisis, 
you know, well before these bushfires. But really, I mean, even though it is affecting everything all the time, uh, it, it was kind of intellectual. It was hypothetical. Well, you know, when our boundary fence caught on fire, it was personal. Mm. And I really understood um, the predicament we in we are in, and it is terrifying. Um, so I don't know how I got there, but, you know, I guess there's a lot of stories to be told, mm. um, and we need to keep talking about them. Absolutely. And, you know, it is a really engaging, informative and, you know, heartfelt body of work and the fact that it's told by the people in the communities affected, I, I would just strongly encourage people to listen to it, particularly if you are based in the city, as I'm sure uh, bushfire seasons are, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to be too abnormal, um, unfortunately, to be experiencing things like this. So it's, yeah, it's, it's great to be able to be educated about it by the people that have been affected. Um, Sarah and Alice, thank you so much for your time and yeah, for putting together this great body of work. Thank Thanks, you. Uh, we were just chatting all about From the Embers, which is a new podcast from the CBAA, the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Uh, we were just chatting there with the executive producer, Sarah Mashman, and another producer, Alice Ansara. Uh, it's a yeah, really important reminder uh, for us all about the importance of storytelling, uh, particularly in communities that, you know, have been affected by something quite horrific, like the recent bushfire season. And yeah, this, I think, podcast was a really uh, an opportunity for some healing for a lot of people. And yeah, I would encourage you to check it out. You can you can get it wherever you get your podcasts from. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. That's right. You are listening to Triple R. My name is Beth AQ and you're in the glass house and I'm excited to have my next guest joining me on the line. Dr. Eve Rees is a writer and historian living on the unceded Wondry lands. Uh, they currently lecture in history at La Trobe University and co-host a history podcast called Archive Fever. And they've been published widely, but they joined me today to talk about their Calibre award-winning essay called Reading the Mess Backwards. It is an essay, uh, it's a, a story of trans becoming that digs into the messiness of bodies and gender and identity. Uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. My pleasure. Great to be here. So firstly, a massive congratulations uh, on your win. It's very exciting. Um, and I suppose before we get stuck into the piece, I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, you and your work and your creative writing practice and, and what kind of led you to this point. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, like I trained as a historian um, and so much of my writing has been in the kind of more historical academic genre. I've been working as a historian for about the past decade. Um, but I've always been a really passionate reader. And uh, when it's about two years ago when I first came out um, as transgender, I kind of intuitively gravitated towards more creative personal writing as a way to make sense of my experience, um, to try and kind of understand what was going on 
and also to kind of connect with other people because I, when I first came out as trans, I didn't know any trans people. I felt incredibly lonely and isolated and it was really reading trans life writing, whether in the form of memoirs or essays that really, you know, almost saved my life and made me feel less alone and have a sense of community. And so I kind of got into that writing myself as a way to kind of continue that conversation and kind of pass that gift on to other people. Mm. And, and this essay is a it is a memoir essay. It's an interrogation of, of your experience with gender and your body. And, you know, it's a look at the moments of interrogation, I suppose, both of yourself, but also the gendered ideas that uh, we put onto young people uh, and everybody essentially and their bodies. I'm, I'm interested, what was the process like for you kind of recalling or reminiscing on, on these moments that were often quite challenging or, or upsetting. What was it like to, to look back on, on those moments? Well, I mean, as a historian, I suppose I'm trained to be a bit distrustful of memory. <laughs> um, and I'm really conscious of the way in which we, um, you know, as humans, we kind of constantly are re-remembering and re-narrativizing our own past to kind of make sense of who we are and where we are in the present. We're always retelling the story of ourselves. And so, you know, when I came out as trans, I kind of immediately turned back to my childhood to kind of try and make sense of it all, you know, to try and understand, you know, was this always who I was and it was some kind of hidden repressed knowledge lurking beneath the surface or is it this something that's just kind of appeared out of nowhere? Because, you know, I was about 30 years old when I kind of first came to identify as trans, so I'd lived quite a long while as a cisgender person. So, I mean, on the one hand, I'm very conscious that my kind of telling of my childhood in this piece is just one version of a history that could be told of my life Um, because, you know, memory is fickle and um, there's always many ways to organise a series of events into a narrative. But at the same time, this piece, in a sense, was very easy to write and I wrote it quite quickly because these were all incredibly vivid memories and moments that had stuck in my mind. Um... And, you know, now took on renewed significance of moments of kind of gender non-conforming behaviour or presentation or confusion about bodies. Uh, But I remembered them, had always remembered them all very vividly. Mm. You, well, sorry, you write about, um, well, there's a section in it that you say you write that without a language to express this mess, I leave my body behind. And, you know, that kind of, that sentence or those sentences really... Um, speak to me that, you know, writing is a way for you to kind of unpack these ideas and feelings about yourself. Do you, do you see writing as a, a way to kind of give you access to language to learn more about yourself? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, certainly for me and for many uh, trans and gender diverse people who came out as adults, you know, when we were children, we had this kind of unarticulated sense of being different or other or not quite fitting in. But, no, it's only been very recently that the language of gender diversity has entered mainstream discourse. You know, I'd never even heard of the idea of being non-binary until about five years ago. Um, So I think for me and for many of us, because we were kind of denied a language to make sense of our experience as children, as young people. Now, in the present, language can be a really powerful tool to kind of name 
and articulate and represent who we are because, you know, we need to remember that it's through cultural representation that certain identities become possible, that they become even knowable. Like it's impossible to kind of even think of yourself as a thing unless there's kind of words and concepts to articulate that thing. So when as we as trans people, we take control of that language, that can be a really incredibly powerful political act because we're carving out new ways of being in the world, both for us as individuals, but also kind of opening up new possibilities for everyone else. And that's a big part of what I wanted to do with this essay is to kind of complicate my own gendered history by, you know, looking at the ways in which I had, I was sort of gender non-conforming or masculine as a child, but also to kind of provoke all people, including cisgender people, to kind of interrogate the sort of the slipperiness of gender and how that maps onto bodies and how arbitrary so many of our ideas about gender and bodies really are. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make so many really astute observations in this piece about the gendered markers of our society and the ways that people and institutions kind of reinforce these restrictive binaries through like conversation and expectation and you know in this essay we kind of see it unfold in sporting clubs and in changing rooms and 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 in public toilets i'm i'm interested can you speak to that a little bit yeah i think um you know one like coming out as transgender is very difficult and lonely in many ways but it's also incredibly fascinating you know I think perhaps for me particularly you know as someone trained in gender history so kind of trained to see how gender operates in the world it wasn't until I came out as trans that I really properly understood how much a gender binary is constructed and enforced and policed through the everyday structures of our lives. You know, really basic things like binary gendered public toilets, like, um, you know, like uh, fashion, you know, it's all divided into menswear and womenswear um, and, you know, as with change rooms and you know as I mean I describe myself as a non-binary transmasculine person it's really hard to know like what clothes to buy and you know where to find them clothes that feel like a representation of who I am um you know it's the same in terms of pronouns you know uh she her and he his you know binary gendered pronouns are so embedded in our language and it's been really fascinating to me how you know I use they them pronouns and it's been fascinating to see how hard that is for people to get used to you know even people who know me well who know my pronouns who respect me who want to do the right thing they just struggle time and time and again because it's such a default to see people in a gendered way um so you know in in many ways this journey I've been on has been a real gift because it's uh given me so much more insight into the often really harmful policing of gender um and I suppose that's a big driver for me in writing about it because I kind of want to, you know, document these observations and share them with others because I think, you know, we can all benefit from understanding more how gender impacts and very often constrains our lives. Because, you know, even for cisgender people, the kind of really restrictive norms of binary femininity or masculinity can be really suffocating and at times life-destroying. Mm, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, if you have just joined us, we are chatting to Dr. Eve Rees, who is a writer, and we're talking about uh, an essay that they've uh, won a prize for, the Calibre Award um, for 
the essay Reading the Mess Backwards, and it's a look at uh, trans identity and the messiness of gender. I'm interested, you know, in this essay, you kind of reference a few, um, you know, authors or thinkers. You've got Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts as a book that, you know, really explores the experience of of being in between and sometimes outside of a constructed gender binary. You also mention uh, Imogen Binney um, with Nevada. Can you talk me through, I suppose, the the influence that they've had on, on your writing and also perhaps some other writers and thinkers that have helped inform your writing around gender? Completely. Um, yeah, so Maggie Nelson, The Argonauts, you know, was one of those books that I read kind of at precisely the right moment in my life. You know, I um, read it shortly after it was released um, in early 2016 and it kind of, you know, exploded and remade my whole view of the world and myself. It was sort of the book that led me to first... Um, you know, question my gender identity because, for, you know, any any listeners who don't know it, um, Maggie Nelson writes about her partner, Harry Dodge, who's a kind of gender non-conforming person who has some masculine presentation but kind of refuses to fit into a gender binary. And I'd never even encountered those kind of ideas before and it just kind of knocked my socks off. Um, uh, Nevada by Imogen Binney is a really... Um, kind of quite a wild, rollicking read, but also a very profound novel. Um, it's a kind of remake of the uh, classic American road story where um, uh, a trans woman kind of goes on the run and befriends a young man who's questioning his own gender and beginning to think he might be trans. And I also read that book at a pivotal moment when, you know, I was kind of beginning to question my own gender more and more. And so I saw a lot of myself in this young man. Mm. Um, there are so many other books I could mention and so many other writers. Um, a few that have stood out to me, um, there's a uh, US writer called Thomas Page McBee. He's a trans man who's written several memoirs about... Um, his kind of experience of transitioning and the and the kind of weirdness of being read as male because he's a sort of binary trans person being read as male when you've been socialised as female um, and the weird way in which you know having a deeper voice you know through testosterone can you know suddenly you know win your respect and so on. I also love uh, Geordie Rosenberg's. Um, novel Confessions of the Fox, which is a, uh, a kind of historical novel um, about this much fictionalised character called Jack Shepard, who's sort of reimagined as a trans figure. But, you know, I mean, there's also, like, countless essayists um, and, you know, short story writers. Um, and I think we're really at the beginning of the kind of the crest of a wave of a real explosion of trans, particularly trans-masculine creativity in this country. At the moment, I'm uh, running a trans-masculine writing collective with my collaborator, Sam Elkin. Our mm. collective is called Spilling the Tea. And we've got about 30 extraordinarily talented trans-mask writers and you know, I had no idea there were that many of us out there, so I can't wait to see what they all produce. I love that. That's so exciting. It's been such a pleasure um, reading your work and, and talking to you this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. We were just chatting there with Dr Eve Rees, uh, writer, historian, essayist. They've just won the Calibre 
prize, uh, the Calibre Award, sorry, for their essay called Reading the Mess Backwards. Um, it is a, a really interesting essay that explores uh, trans identity and the messiness of, of bodies and, and gender. And you can read it now if you pick up the June-July copy of the Australian Book Review. But I also do want to say a big thank you to my earlier guests, uh, Sarah Mashman and Alice Ansara, for talking to me about the From the Embers podcast, a new one from the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia, a really intimate uh, look at some of the communities affected by the bushfires of this last bushfire season. And you can get it, you can have a listen to it wherever you get your podcasts from, and I would highly recommend it. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 